Hey, hey. Okay, so this one's going to be chit-chat style. I remembered a question that I wanted to kind of just um, research because it's been a long time since my freshman year in in college. and But I do remember that one of the books we had to read was talking about the different types of feminism. And I do remember there were discussions between um, when the white women and the black women went their separate ways because we weren't able to identify with with the with the needs of each other because our lives were so different and so i just kind of googled it and you're welcome to listen in as i kind of just go through what's out here right now so i typed in like why did black feminists and white feminists separate and one of the first things that's coming up is something from 2007 and so it says white and black feminism in the movement years um so let's go ahead and read that and then if i have some time now this one might actually be this one this one was written july 2021 i might go with this one instead it says the gaps of white feminism and the women of of color i think who fell through and it starts off by saying the white feminist movement failed to center the collective survival and thriving of all women. So let's go ahead and click on that. So it says, this is um, from newamerica.org. The gaps of white feminism and the women of color who fell through. So it says, to achieve, to achieve gender equality and work family justice, we need a more inclusive ideology modeled in the intersectionality of black feminism. Okay. This is so interesting to me too, and I, I'm, you know, figure out to which degree I want to research more of this, but I, I'm saying like men and women are not the same, but I think if we're doing the same work, we should get the same pay, obviously. Should go without saying. Um... So this was written by Jadzia, Jadzia St. Julian and Emily Halgren, July 2021. So this is fairly recent. It says a coronavirus pandemic smashed the illusion of gender equality into a billion tiny pieces. And that's so funny because, y'all, I, I love learning so much. This is how I feel. I'm like, yeah, we are not... The ideas that we had surrounding gender equality, I think they're definitely being shape-shifted right now. So it says, for so long, white feminism has celebrated the success of a few. Women who gained powerful political positions led the largest Fortune 500 companies in foray into historically male-dominated spaces while overlooking the suffering of millions. According to Koa Beck, journalist and author of the new book, White Feminism, the ideology and strategy of white feminism, quote unquote, focuses more on individual accumulation, capital and individuality. With brute force, COVID-19 took a sledgehammer to white feminism's illusions of progress, to expose a harrowing reality. Despite decades of feminist organizing, women are still 
sinking under the weight of inequality at work and at home. When COVID-19 infection rates began to rise March 2020, women lost more than 12.2 million jobs and still had a net loss of 5.1 million by February 2021. Overrepresented in the sectors most impacted by pandemic layoffs such as hospitality, leisure, retail, women of color and women in low-paying jobs were left reeling. In May 2021, months into recovery, Black women's unemployment rate was 1.5 times that of white women's, and similarly, Latinx women's was 1.6 times higher than their white counterparts. For the millions of women who managed to keep their jobs, work took a backseat to caregiving and household household responsibilities. This work overwhelmingly fell to them rather than to the men in in their households. Consequently, 2.3 women, 2.3 million women exited the labor force by February 2021, and many are still leaving in the hundreds of thousands, even as men continue to enter it. On the front lines, women of color were overrepresented and at higher risk for contracting COVID-19. They too struggled to access care for their children, when 60% of child care centers across the nation closed during the pandemic peak. I remember when that happened, y'all. Like, I remember thinking like, oh my God, can you imagine if you have to go to work and your daycare can't take care of your kids? I rem- And I don't even have kids, but it was definitely hitting hard like around the people around me. So it says, this is the state, the reality of gender equality in the United States. So how did we get here? It says in white feminism, so referring back to that book, Beck provides an answer. When it comes to the lack of work family policy support that could have helped women survive and even thrive amid unprecedented disruptions to work and family life, white feminism, one culprit among many, is to blame. So it says it has ultimately failed to robustly advocate for essential policies like universal paid family and medical leave or a strong care infrastructure. Now, you know what? This is kind of interesting to me because um this 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 is interesting because they're saying that one of the things that um she's saying white feminism here is that we haven't fought enough and as as a self-proclaimed feminist haven't really pushed for universal paid you know paid family and medical leave so there's definitely room to improve because um it's being reminded that part of being a feminist is celebrate celebrating in 1971 i think it was like the early 1970s 1971 if i'm not mistaken women were allowed to have a checking account Right. So for everybody who's anti-feminist, go ahead, go to the bank, close out your checking account. Okay. If your name is on a on a real estate property, I'm gonna need you to sign that over to your father 
or your brother or some male within your, you know, whatever. And um, if you work, <laughs> resign immediately type of a thing. So we've made progress in terms of like being able to enter the workforce, um, still have problems with the wage disparity. But, um, you know, I, th- my sentiments, and I'm going to c- continue reading here too, Sometimes when I read this stuff, I view it as a challenge, like, okay, we this is where we need to go. We have room for growth. And especially if we're if we're having conversations about having more woman-centered communities, we should definitely, you know, advocate for these type of things. Um it says, as we grapple with the damage the pandemic has wrought on the households and livelihoods of women over the past years, we must confront the failures of white feminism and advocate for an inclusive feminist movement that centers the collective survival and thriving of all women rather than the success of a few. But to truly understand how and why white feminism has failed women, and especially women of color, it is necessary to survey a bit of its history. And this is what I was interested in. So let's let's kind of look at it a little bit. Obviously, one article is not going to cover everything because literally there's just like one, two, three, four, five, like six paragraphs. So it says, tracing the roots of white feminism in the United States. Back to 1848, Seneca Falls Convention, Beck explains that the founders of the white women's movement primarily wanted one thing. Mm. Shared power over systems with men. And that right there is just telling, right? If if this is from the book, um, White Feminism. They wanted to share power over the system with men. That's crazy, y'all. And so I've talked about a little bit of my disdain with like learning that, you know, white women were slave owners, too. And they were just as as egregious, if not worse, in how they treated both their men, women and children. They were way more like heinous and treacherous and... um in terms of like torture and abuse than the men were. But I mean, I'm just thankful, like when I think about everything that my ancestors went through, you know, for me to be even sitting here because it's just, it was some very dark centuries, right? And so, but they wanted to share power with men. So it wasn't that they wanted power as much as they wanted to have uh, a seat at the table in subjugating other people. (laughs) That's wild. It says, above all, early white feminists wanted to vote. Understandably, it says, in their pursuit for power. You know, and this I remember from the little bit that I do remember uh, one of the things that kind of upset, you know, I think for white women was that black women were able to vote. I think was it before they were, before white women were able to? Because with with the civil rights movements, um, 
women were able to, um, was it work and then vote? And then because it was passed for black women, then white women got, got it too. So it says, above all, early white feminists wanted to vote. In their pursuit for power, they proved themselves unwilling and uninterested in prioritizing the political enfranchisement of African Americans post-Civil War. In 19, no, 1865, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which actually, um, they, there, there was some things that were saying that she's racist and also, um, the other one that started the Planned Parenthood, um, foundation, but this woman has been cited as being racist, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She says one of the most prominent figures in the movement wrote a letter to the editor saying, Now, as the celestial gate to civil rights is slowly moving on its hinges, it becomes a serious question whether we had better stand aside and see, and then she uses this derogatory term, so it's in in air quotes, see Sambo walk into the kingdom first. So just being really cutthroat and, you know... kind of feeling like, you know, she, the the language is telling there too, you know, who's going to get there first, right? Um, It says, white feminism from the start sought self-preservation, and that's also in quotes, right? As Stanton put it, above all things, over the course of a century, white feminists sought power over rather than liberation from oppressive systems. Yeah, so they wanted their hands on, um to be on the reins as opposed to overturning it. So it says, we must confront the failures of white feminism and advocate for an inclusive feminist movement that centers the collective survival and thriving of all women rather than the success of you. And y'all, that makes me kind of want to cry a little bit. Like, I don't know who the author is but those names are hmm yeah I'm I'm a little bit sentimental but that because it can feel like especially if you heard my last few podcasts they are very just musing and me fleshing out my thoughts and stuff um It would nice to have be nice to have something a little bit more inclusive, right? It says fast forward to the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies when the leading white feminist organization, the National Organization of Women, or now, focused more of its efforts on increasing women's corporate and political reach. As Beck explains, now did not build out its anti women's poverty platform, nor did it increase the membership among low-income women. So, but that makes sense too, because even though you can kind of hear some of the racist um, way of thinking in there, if you're talking about not also, about also not including low-income women, now you're creating these structures where it's kind of like, aha, 
I'm on the top. I have more power. I have more than you. I get to um, usurp that type of power. So, and it's crazy because the the podcast before this one, one of my maxims moving forward, right? One of my guiding principles, what um what I will hold up content to is ask myself, is this woman-centered? Are the things that I'm saying and doing, are they woman-centered? And so here you have this whole movement that's, um you know, for now being called um National Organization for Women, but it definitely was not inclusive at all. And it still sought to separate and and divide and if you you know you've always heard those sayings where it's like we can go if you want to go fast go by yourself if you want to go further go as a group but also the idea that you know if you want to win against the opposition divide and conquer them so how is it that you're going to have a women's organization, but now all of a sudden it's going to be broken down into like, well, we are of a different class and we are of a different race and we need to continue to um, perpetuate this like power against you. Like it's just what, so it says, as Beck explains now did not, yeah, did not build, it's anti-women's poverty platform, nor did it increase membership among low-income women. Rather than challenge the very structures and systems that perpetuated white supremacy and inequality across gender and class, it left behind the women marginalized and oppressed by the very systems It says, in the absence of a feminist movement dedicated to addressing racial, economic, political, gender oppression, women of color advocated for and created alternatives. As early as 1866, black women called for a more inclusive feminist movement rooted in intersectionality. And that's why, I mean, I, I tried to articulate this in the first podcast where I said, in my opinion, it's easier for me to see black women trying to just take on like, we're the first ones to say, oh, black and brown coalition and more looking out for like, you is kind, you is special, you is, you is nice, you know, and taking on, you know, um, other people and and ingratiating them into our culture and into our community and making sure that the and, and if you think about it, even you know if we are the mothers um even though you know collectively they spit on our face and if you start to understand the eve gene that's that's maternal right you look out for your babies and you want to see them thrive so you're not gonna want to pit one child against the other right when you look at it on the grander scheme of things but um that that's why I mean 
this this is kind of validation for for what I was saying. It's like it's more likely for a black woman, in my opinion, to be kind of like more encompassing of like we feel bad for the Filipinas, we feel bad for the Brazilians, we feel bad for the Colombians, we feel bad for you know all the things happening around the world in in the u k and you know all around the world um from every race and ethnicity and but it I don't find it to be reciprocated very often so but it says here so in the absence of the feminist movement that they had at the time which is like the white feminist movement so I'm kind of adding ad-libbing my own words in here but it says in the absence of feminist movement dedicated to addressing the racial economic political and gender oppression women of color were the ones who advocated for and created alternatives. It says, as early as 1866, black women called for a more inclusive feminist movement rooted in intersectionality. So this, this, us trying to have these conversations, um, this is nothing new. And that's why I feel like my DNA is fatigued. Like, girl, we done, we've been been trying to tell these people and work with these people and I'm checked out the building you know we we've been been trying this from 1866 girl like you talking about so if you this definitely gives me 40 years in the desert of just going in circles (laughs) you know just just aimlessly let's let's repeat another round we can figure out you know get to the root of the problem and nip it in the bud and get to the quote unquote proverbial promised land, or we can go another. It's 1866, 1966, 2066, you know? So it says, as early as 1866, black women called for a more inclusive feminist movement rooted in intersectionality. A year after the Emancipation Proclamation. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, which is a black woman, an orator, abolitionist, and activist, and writer. Girl, it's the commas for me. She's a black woman, orator, abolitionist, activist, and writer, delivered a speech at the 1866 National Women's Rights Convention. Mm. Now, that one is different. That's National Women's Rights Conventions. The other one was National Organization for Women. Hmm. It says, in it, she challenged white feminism's failure to fight against racial oppression, which affected black women. She says, I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it's the white women of America. (laughs) Ended Harper. Ah, y'all. It says, in this speech, she alluded to the shortcomings of white feminism, voicing the need for a different ideology rooted in the liberation for all women. Hmm. That's a lot to take in, um, so just kind of bear with me. Hmm. 
It says, in the early 1970s, a group of black women heeded Harper's call. So Harper is the, the black woman that was orator, abolition, and activist. It says, the Combahee River Collective imagined an alternative and more inclusive feminist ideology whose understanding of intersectionality can continue to serve as a model today. Founded by black women in 1974, so this is fairly recently, y'all, the collective acknowledged the intersectional nature of oppression. Intersectional meaning, and I'm just going to go back and kind of um, keep my spot right here too. But so when they're talking about intersectional, remember the first organization now they were aiming it only basically like at white women, but intersectionality means that you're trying to get including low income women and you are including all. So here it says racial, economic, political, gender, right? So all the races of every economic background, of every political background. So whether you're Democratic or Republican, we should all be you know, have something in common, which is um, women-centered, right? So it says um, these women, um, known as the collective, acknowledge the intersectional nature of oppression, which is so interesting too, acknowledging the intersectional nature of oppression because with oppression, the oppression is uh, listed by racial. So if, if I'm dark skin, big nose, big lips, coil, coily hair, then I can be oppressed that way. If I have low income because I'm not hired or employed or, you know, there's discriminatory practices based on the color of my skin and whatnot and my phenotype and everything, then yeah, that's going to affect my economic ability to provide for myself, my family, and pass on wealth to my children. The oppression rooted in politics, you know, when you look at the, how we vote certain ways, how it can keep, it can be set up to, I apologize. I'd rather yawn than burp, but y'all. <laughs> and it was so cute and delicate too when I did my little yawn, like meow, meow. So with political, um, you're either going to be voting to advance the collective or advance a few and or suppress, you know, collectives outside of yourself or suppress the other. And of course, with gender... There's oppression, you know, in terms of hiring and who can hold certain positions and who can hold political office and how much they earn. So that's why these things are important. They acknowledged the intersectional nature of oppression. Racism is just one layer of it. Um, I've talked a little bit about the po politics. There were some laws where I saw that um, the Republican Party passed some... Um, what would you call them? They passed some um, introductions to to laws that where it says like protect black men and boys. 
there isn't one for black women and black girls um and the the democratic party has absolutely nothing at all for black women and girls the republican party has nothing for black women and girls um republican party has something for black men and boys and it does bother me i don't know why they would try to split us up but it just goes to show I've said this before. I feel like they are a protected class. It kind of gives you an insight into the patriarchy, right? So, um, they acknowledge that the oppression is intersectional in its nature. It says, in their inaugural statement, the founders articulated that focusing on one oppressed identity alone leaves out far too many far too much and far too many people it says freedom for black women and all women necessitated the synchronous synchronous dismantling of systems of heterosexism sexism economic exploitation and racial oppression Mm, mm, mm. come on now that's deep that's freaking deep, y'all. And I'm cautious that I'm reading it to you. And it's a lot because each word is so loaded. <clears throat> the freedom of black women or all women, it says, and all black women, necessitates the synchronous. So synchronicity, meaning the, it's like us in effort, in unison, working together. Right to dismantle the systems of heterosexism, sexism, economic exploitation, and ra- racial oppression. <sighs> mm. Mm-mm. I'm the, that <laughs> the nerdy side of me is just kind of coming out. That's 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 a lot. It says, this form of inclusive feminism imagined something bolder than individual success. It envisioned freedom for everyone and necessitated sustained collective action for structural change. It says, however, black feminism was not the dominant model of feminism. White feminism was and continues to be. Now, keep in mind, they wrote this article in 2021. It says, today, white feminism tells women that they can make it to the top if they demand more, work longer, and change their mindsets. That's freaking wild. Mm. And so if you start to understand that in the previous sentence, previous paragraph, when the collective was talking, right, the collective was talking about the the um, group of black women that wanted to address the intersectional issues. One of the issues was um, exploitation. So why would you buy into or tap into a system where you're being economically exploited and being underpaid by working longer? Like that's just, do you hear how counterintuitive that is? We have worked ourselves into the ground. You should be able to work a regular nine to five job and be able to go home to your family and um and have time to work out and do what you need to. 
So the idea of getting paid less and having to work harder and mule yourself is not, it's not very healthy minded. And then I think it kind of makes sense why black women would be tuned into that because if they're going from, you know, working for free, they understand the exploitative um, nature of just being worked from like freaking five o'clock in the morning until late into the hours, right? Late, late into the night. And, and this is crazy too, because I mean, juxtapose against the backdrop of like what I've been learning from even Princella, right? I feel like, so it says here that white feminism was telling women that they needed to demand more, work harder and change their mindsets. And so that's how you end up with that pit, pit, uh, that pit bull in a skirt type of a thing where it's kind of like where you have women wearing pantsuits and this idea of like presenting like a masculine as opposed to, you know, um, I think is it Tanya keeps mentioning a book. It's called The Athena Code. And it talks about how the the companies that will thrive moving forward in the future are are usually are going to be run by women because women's style of leadership leadership style is more um conducive and, and can run f- you know last for the long run in terms of um or give afford longevity and people enjoy working for for um companies that are run by women I remember I was talking about I I really enjoyed doing the podcast on the um there was this black woman astronaut and I really loved her philanthropic efforts because she could have done um I feel like using the word she could have been relegated to <laughs> she could have just regulated her um philanthropic efforts to just you know like speaking around the world maybe write a book maybe do a scholarship and just let people kind of figure themselves out but what I liked about her approach is that she thought about everything that she went through and things that she could have that she would have um that would have helped her if they were in place when she was in school so not only did she have scholarships, she had internships, she had hands-on programs, um, very engaged, right? Providing materials, supplies, all this other stuff, like just so much more than just scholarships. And I love that that's how black women think. I love that that's how women think, you know, for the most part, and even understanding. And so then that would make sense why at the beginning of the article, they were saying that, if we're going to be pro-woman, then we need to be addressing these. Um, let me see if I can find a way to go to the top. So today, let me see. Oh, yeah. Pay family leave, universal uh, family leave um, and medical leave and strong care infrastructure. Okay. Um, 
We're almost done. So it says, today white feminist, white feminine, no, 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 I think I missed a part. No, 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 okay, so it says, today white feminism tells women that they can make it to the top if they demand more, work longer, and change their mindsets, or think more like a guy, right? Um, this says, or think more like an XY. It says, white feminism is plastered on magazine covers and hangs in the air at empowerment conferences. But as Beck explains, if individual achievements and corporate success continue to masquerade as gender equality, then structural issues like minimal access to paid leave and unaffordable childcare will continue unabated. And those are just a few of the issues that, you know, again, I don't have children. Um, so but I, I I do remember, like I said, when the pandemic hit, I do remember thinking that I remember like, oh, my word, this is a problem. Like, how are we going to make it without that? But I say that because to me, what's on my radar, it's things like how do you have 10,000 rape kits that haven't been processed? How do you have, you know, like high eviction rates for, for black women? How do we address safety issues? How do we address the femicide and um, disproportionate, like the wage pay gap, that's still a huge issue. I also have issues, obviously, from the real estate side with the um, redlining practices and, you know, um, our property values not being appraised. But this, this is, um, th- that, that, I think some of the things I'm talking about are kind of economic and socioeconomic. Whereas these are definitely absolutely like women centered, which coincidentally, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, these things can benefit men too, because we really have come a long way. I remember the difference between when I first started like my freshman year to versus when I was in my doctorate program, the difference would be that, you know, women had to fight still or or kind of really jumped through a lot of hurdles to be able to stay at home with their children after having giving birth. Whereas like when I was in my doctorate program, it's like um, the, the wife would stay for the first three months with her child and then the dad could stay for the last, for he would get three months off as well. And if they wanted to adopt, the husband, you know, could stay at home with the child too and, and was included in the, you know, paid leave type of stuff so I like that it's when you you are never going to rise above the lowest woman right so if you make it better for women you make it better for the for everyone including the children right if we have better healthier stronger children they're not being so bogged down with a lot of like karmic debt type of stuff and they're free to to blossom into the people that they were born here to be. So, um, yeah. So basically she's saying that if we continue just saying like, oh, well, this one person made it, you know, they, and, and masquerading that to make it seem as if we, gender equality is really a thing, then it says, you know, other issues that we have like paid leave and unaffordable care will continue unabated. She says, even worse, 
the issues that overwhelmingly affect women of color, such as labor market segregation, underpaid care work, right, mass incarceration, wage gaps, and racialized gender violence will still go unaddressed by the mainstream feminist movement, right? And I kind of talked about that a little bit too. Hmm. It says, until an alternative feminist ideology is adopted, gender inequality rooted in structures and systems will persist. An alternative feminist ideology. Hmm. Hmm. It says, if an inclusive form of feminism, like the one outlined by the Combahee River Collective, were adopted in the dominant model in 2021 or 2023, What would the movement for gender equality look like today? What demands would feminists make and what solutions would they offer? And I think that, you know, obviously we're having this conversation in 2023. What what does it mean to be a feminist? You have, within the last six months, at least some of the circles I'm in, you have some people say, I am not a feminist. I'm not going to be out here biting men's head off. I'm like, baby. It has nothing to do with you hating men or biting their heads off. Be happy you have a checking account. Be happy that you can own real estate and pass it on to your children. Be happy that you can have a job and and provide for yourself and your children. We still have wage gap issues. You know, be happy that you can have a driver's license, you know, um... And hopefully we can make progress in some of these other things. So I'm proud to identify as a, as a feminist. I'm proud to identify as uh, somebody who strives to be woman-centered. That's, I mean, some things I'm probably a little bit sensitive. Like if you try to call me out on some shit, I probably would, you know, be like, I don't know who the fuck you think you are. But I feel like if you were to say like, hey, we need to be a little bit more woman-centered in this area, I'd be like, yeah. Definitely, let's do it. Like, I'm not going to fight you on that. I don't feel like, you know. So, what are some solutions and how do we make that work, you know? It says, an inclusive feminist movement grounded in the experiences of women of color and fighting for freedom of all people is one that would bring about true work family justice. With this movement, we would demand paid leave policies that center the needs of the most marginalized workers rather than the most privileged. Such a movement can demand that the government invest in child care, you know, and, and this is so important, like I've said, too. It really does go in tandem with child care. Like, as soon as you say you're woman-centered, right shortly thereafter, it has to be child-centered, too, because... Even though I don't have children, I could see where it would make a better place for children, you know, because if childcare is affordable, then it's like it it allows the mom to be able to um, work 
<laughs> do her 50-50 if that, you know, that lip gloss be popping. But no. But um, kind of just provide more for their children versus having to have that as a stressor. So this one talks about investing in childcare that is affordable, accessible, and high quality for the parents who currently have the least access to it. it says this feminist struggle will not be easy, but to succeed, it must be grounded in the collective uplifting of those white feminists who repeatedly failed and left behind. Um, it says in the future, we should be able to look back and mark the COVID-19 crises and the deep societal fish, uh, fissures and inequalities that it laid bare as the birth of a new moment of inclusive feminism. And I agree with that because I don't, I would be interested to find out more about why they think that COVID-19, you know, um, contributed to it. She kind of hinted to it in the sense of like, you know, you had a lot of women leaving the workplace to take on more of the household duties because of the childcare but I think like even for me and a lot of other people it forced us to kind of come online I mean if you're not at work and you're not you know you're distancing and stuff then you have more access to what's going on in social media and more of the conversations and and in that there were already conversations that were percolating in this dancery about you know relationships and feminism and community and politics and economics and all that other stuff. So here it says you may also like, for example, toward a feminist foreign policy in the United States. This one it says our team with the International Center for Research on Women discuss the launch of a vision for a feminist foreign policy in the United States with a coalition of more than 50 leading humanitarian foreign policy and women's rights group. Crisis Conversations, Women in Leadership. It says... It says, in this podcast, women leaders and thinkers share what needs to change to create space for more diverse women leaders and enable them to thrive and why especially now this matters so much for all of us and then feminism doesn't have to be comfortable for everyone Uh. this article we discuss the intersectionality within feminism and how our desire to be comfortable over moral ground has left out women of color in the feminist movement now that would be another good one um, I probably, let me click on it and I probably could read this one with you guys tomorrow. Yeah, because it's getting close to my bedtime, y'all. Uh, I did take my, my sleeping supplement, so. Oh, this was written during Black History Month in, um, 2018 by Rochelle Hampton. And it's not that long, but um, let me read through it real quick. I'm going to try to finish this in 16 minutes. So it says, um, by Rochelle Hampton, February 8, 2018. So I won't do as much as my commentary, as much as I'll read the article. Feminism doesn't have to be comfortable for everyone. And it says, in the wake of the seen defeat of our first female president presidential nominee, feminists have rightfully taken a step back to reexamine their platform. 
Now, if they're talking about Kamala, I, you know, as much as it was played to death in our community, she's like, if you think I'm going to sit here and do anything for black people, no. Uh, that's not one of the best moments. Um, you know, but it says, but if the goal is to protest and build a broader coalition, co- coalitional front, Intersectional feminism seems like it's doing the opposite. Intersectionality alienates those who do not care. Mm, that's that's completely different than the other one because intersectionality, remember they were saying, had to do with like heterosexism, um, racism, economic, political... So it says intersection in according to this person, she believes that intersectionality alienates those who do not care and forgive me for using this phrase to check their privilege. Okay, so if I were to cut out the middle part, because I was about to say, girl, what do you mean? So it says intersectionality alienates those who do not care to check their privilege. So if they just don't give a F, basically intersectionality means nothing to them and and that was kind of referring back to how they weren't trying to recruit um like the now organization wasn't trying to recruit people that were from like a low income or outside of their race type of a thing so check and verify that sentence so it says it makes people uncomfortable it forces us to call out our favorite celebrities for saying things like having a female lead in a movie is more important than whitewashing. Or our favorite writers for publishing yet another tone-deaf and patronizing article on black femininity. No, Serena Williams did not single-handedly destroy equality by posing in Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. Which is another thing too, right? So remember in the last article they talked about how as long as we continue to say you know, if we celebrate like the single instances of her being the one black tennis player, then we do ourselves an injustice. We are kind of um using a broad stroke. I don't know if you remember that that part. Let me go back. Let me go back to that um section. It said, as long as we Mm-mm-mm. I'm I'm pretty sure it's gonna be a little bit longer than than an hour. It was the part where it said masquerade. Mm. Let me do this real quick. If you do like command F and do masquerade, there it is. So it says um, if individual achievements, right? So if individual achievements and corporate success continue to masquerade as gender equality, then structural issues like minimal access to paid leave and unaffordable childcare will continue to be unabated. So that's kind of, I guess, the reason why they cited this as being a good supplementary um, article to read. Because um, she says here, it forces us to call out Certain things, including, you know, like our favorite writers for publishing yet another tone-deaf and patronizing article on black femininity. No, Serena did not single-handedly destroy equality by posing in Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or even our favorite presidential candidates 
for relying on quotes from people of color without including them in any meaningful way in their policy reform. Now, that is freaking deep. It's like you get to sit up there and say all of these things and it's so surface level. Like one of the, mm, do I want to go there? Let me leave it alone. Let me leave it alone. So it says, um, but if the goal is equality, I hope that it is then the trickle-down equality that mainstream feminism seems to advocate for is not enough. We should not strive for a palatable form of feminism, a feminism that ignores mass incarcerations or immigrant detention conditions or voting suppressions or a feminism that celebrities can pull out when it's convenient. Political activism, good political activism at least, will alienate people. If it didn't there would be no need for it this is deep y'all let me try to finish this in the next eight minutes so it says um it's both comforting comforting and disconcerting to know that this debate is nothing new in 1870 when congress passed the 15th amendment theoretically enabling black men to vote White suffragists felt the best way to engender their cause nationally was to throw black people under the bus. Abolitionist and feminist favorite Susan B. Anthony, which is known to be racist, so it was between her and the other woman that I mentioned before too, famously said, I will cut off his right arm of I will cut off this right arm of mine before I ever go before I ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Racist as fuck. So it says, this conflict came to a head in mid-1890s England when Ida B. Wells, a black journalist, suffragist, and newspaper editor, confronted the quote-unquote uncrowned queen of American democracy, Frances Willard, over her refusal to condemn lynching in the South. Right. So there's a lot of history that stems back to why there's a lot of the sentiments that a lot of us feel. Right. They're not out here like condemning certain things. You know, back then it was lynching. Now it's other stuff. So it says Wells had crossed the Atlantic two years prior when when Thomas a respected black store owner in Memphis and the owner of Wells was lynched alongside two of his friends after defending his store attacks against an attack by whites. And this is interesting, too, because this is a woman wearing her cape and her boots for a man, as opposed to like you would think other black men would be leading in the outrage and advocating and whatnot. But even back then, it's like women calling for rights and even protecting the black man. It's kind of interesting. Anyways, outraged by the murder of her friends, Wells launched an extensive investigation of lynching countered the rape myth used by white mobs to justify the murder of black Americans, a myth white women were complicit in. Mm-mm-mm. Because of her advocacy, the offices of Wells' newspaper were just, was destroyed and she was forced to flee Memphis. It says both Willard and um, Wells were invited to speak before British temperance advocates in 1894. The women's alcohol temperance movement was a powerful force in the great push 
toward women's suffrage. Willard was a strong advocate, stating in a 1890 interview with the New York Voice that the local tavern is the Negro center of power. The colored race multiplies like locusts of Egypt. In, nine, in 1894, Wells came out to the lecture armed with a copy of the interview, and when asked about her opinion of Willard, she chose to read Willard's own racist sentiments back to her. Wells knew that a, as a darling of both the temperance and suffrage movement, the British had a hard time believing that women like Willard would ignore, could ignore the problem of lynching. Y'all, this is freaking deep. Mm. It says, at its heart, the issue was a prototype of intersectionality. Black women could not afford to ignore the racial terror they were facing in the South. Divisiveness be damned. Willard responded not with temerity, but by doubling down on her racism. Y'all, I'm telling you, like my old soul knows this ish. It says, in an interview with the London newspaper following the lecture, she talked about her family's abolitionist past, the 1890s version of I Have Black Friends. Mm. Didn't I talk about that in the first thing? It's kind of like, well, my neighbor is black. I say hi to my neighbor every time I walk my dog, so therefore I'm not black. So um, the version of I Have Black Friends before stating, it is not fair that a plantation Negro who can neither read or write should be entrusted with the ballot. It says, other newspapers called the Wells foul and slanderous, painting her as a divisive Sapphira, Sapphira? with the victimhood complex similar to the backlash Black Lives Matter activists faced. Mm. From the progressive left when they interrupted Bernie Sanders and in August 2015. I, y'all, I have beef with Bernie Sanders. When you talk about... um, He has... There was a book that he wrote and it had to do with like rape fantasy. And Bernie Sanders like was like either the author and it was like from way back in the days when he was in college. He had a... He had a thing for like rape fantasy. And... um. And when you kind of figure out things like why, (laughs) I don't have, there's a reason I don't have time to unpack this. Anyways, or the reaction of Jessica Williams faced when she attempted to explain the specific problem black women face in Hollywood to a room full of mostly white women. Still where Wells ignored the gossip and by the end of the year, the scored a clear victory in establishing the London Anti-Lynching Committee. The group included influential editors, ministers, college professors, members of parliament, and even Willard. Congress never passed a federal anti-lynching law, <coughs> and they still haven't passed it. Um, what's his name? Cory Cory Booker and Kamala have reintroduced the anti-lynching law. Um, this is within the last three years, and it's been shot down. So I'm going to skip ahead and just say, wow. So they even called, remember how I talked about how some of the Filipinas call black women hyenas? The part that I saw right here says, it says, Wells was called a nasty-minded mulatress. And it says, um, Wells publicly shamed Willard for racist views that 
at best ignored the threat of racial violence that black Americans lived under and worse encouraged it. Civil civility and mainstream friendly messages may make people more comfortable, but our preference, especially on the left, for comfort over moral ground is exactly why we still need to have this conversation in 2017. It has been my pleasure, y'all. Until the next podcast.